0: Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Jesse Schiff, who is the founder and CEO of EasyUp, a company that is the MLS for automotive retail, An online marketplace empowering anyone to sell a car from any of their dealership partners. Their sales users get access to thousands of available cars and flat commissions on every single deal. And their dealerships get access to all new customers without having to spend a dollar on advertising before they sell a car. In this episode, we go through how Jesse started this company, what he's done to grow it up until this point, and where he's looking at growth beyond. As always, the show notes are grind.com slash podcast. And of course, you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast. It really just helps more people find the show. Without further ado, here is Jesse Sheff, the founder and CEO of EasyUp, which you can find at easyupwith2p's.com. Jesse, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, glad to be here. Thanks so much.
0: Yes, thanks for coming on and, and obviously talking about EasyUp and kind of your journey with that. And there's a lot behind it. I'm curious though, with with EasyUp, how did this get started? And for people who aren't r- really familiar, like what is EasyUp?
1: Well, EasyUp is a B two B marketplace that allows salespeople to sell a car from any dealership. Uh, really, a lot like an MLS for automotive. Uh, and the way that it started is, you know, I was I was in the car business. I was in the automotive space for twelve years. Uh, I'd always been frustrated by the fact that salespeople weren't truly able to establish connection with the customer. And weren't always able to help that customer because it was just so situational as to whether or not they had a car for the customer. Um, so it just it made no sense if if the cars are out there and the salespeople have customers that need cars and dealerships <laughs> have cars that need customers. Why can't we build some kind of platform to connect those two?
0: With that, Jesse, then understanding that that's, you, know, you have this frustration and that's where a lot of companies end up starting from. What did you see as kind of uh, the the initial steps you're going to have to take to actually make easy up a company and make this kind of come to life?
1: Well, I didn't really know anything about, um, you know, to be honest, building a startup when I when I got started here. Uh, you know, I knew like the popular notion of like what a startup is, which is like a uh, smart college kid drops out of college, <laughs> uh, is feverishly typing at a computer, uh, cre- creates Facebook and becomes rich, right? Um, You know, there's a popular meme where it says something and then it says dot, dot, dot. And then the third one says profit or dominate. And that's kind of, I think the average person's understanding of what a startup is, right? Is like you understand where the person begins and then you see where they finish, but you don't, you don't know what the dot, dot, dot is right. And like the dot, dot, dot is all the work. (laughs) Uh, So initially I just kind of started learning about, you know, what startups are and how what people do in order to be more successful. You know, it's, it's amazing how many resources there are out there nowadays in terms of podcasts, blogs um, you know, it, it's incredible how much content there is. If you really want to know how to, how to build a great company, the resources are out there to figure it out. Uh, so I just started to learn and uh, we launched an MVP actually of easy up within a month or two. I just literally just, took my phone and talked to a bunch of salespeople and told them to text me if they had a customer that needed a car. And then I talked to some dealers and said, Hey, do you mind if I bring you a few deals every now and then? And of course they said, sure. Right. <laughs> and so literally my MVP with easy up was just salespeople texting me, me texting dealers and saying, Hey, I've got a customer interested in this car. Can we set an appointment for them to come by at you know 12 o'clock tomorrow? Uh, said, yes, I went in with the salesperson, we got the car sold and those were our first deals on easy up, right? I mean, just literally ran a cell phone MVP for the first six months, uh, just to kind of figure out what worked. And it was also while I was kind of stumbling through the process of learning how to build a software company too, you know? Uh, yeah. but I didn't want to not figure things out for easy up while I was, you know, I, I wanted to at least get some customer insight and le- learn kind of what worked for the customers, even if I didn't yet know how to really build a, 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 a great website, if I didn't have a great co-founder, a technical side at the beginning, you know, all that stuff. With that too, then, in those few months where you're getting that customer feedback, I mean, what were some of the
0: things they were saying? What, what were some of the insights you were, you know, getting from these people you were you working with already on this very basic MVP, which is great. And that's definitely the way to go about it. But I'm curious as to what were some of those insights you were getting at that time?
1: Uh, you know, it's little stuff that, that it's actually hugely like important to the building of the company, Right. So like originally I had this vision of there being this, this login wall to Facebook before you could see any inventory. Right. And you log in and then you can see the inventory and then you can share and then, and then you can set an appointment with the customer. And then all of a sudden I real, and then, you know, the salespeople said, well, how do we get the customer to go to the dealership if they can't see the inventory? Right. And so <laughs> it, as silly of a thing as that is just in my mind, I imagined this perfect relationship between the salesperson and the customer but in reality, you know, relationships are usually fall on a spectrum somewhere and most people don't have their strongest personal relationship with their car salesman, right? So yeah. uh, we brought the, we brought the inventory search in front of the login wall, right? Like you can, you don't have to be a member of EasyUp Easy to to sign in and look at the cars. You don't have to be a member of EasyUp even to share a listing at this point, right? We want to bring as much of it front, front and center as possible so that you can see the car's and then at some point, if you have something that's interesting, you can become a member and sign up and, and set an appointment with a customer. Or if you're just a customer, you can just see the cars up front and you can even you know search through them. Uh, other things are salespeople wanted to be able to send a link to their customers so their customer could kind of browse on their own time, right? And the salesperson is more of a resource. Um, we, we recently built that functionality in where uh, if a customer you know inquires on a specific vehicle, that just goes back to the salesperson directly instead of going to a dealer or to us or to anything like that. So just little, you know, believe it or not, they, they seem like little things, but they're kind of like really key, you know, like design decisions about uh, how we how we want people to experience our platform, uh, you know, and, and kind of what matters to them. With this idea as well, I mean, who was the team behind this when you first got started with it too? Team behind it is the guy on the microphone here. It was just me in the beginning. <laughs> um, Perfect. You know, I've I had great great experience in the car business lots of uh lots of great network in the business you know I've I've met a lot of people over the my my 10 or 12 years in the business so lots of people that expressed interest in being a part of the company uh but you know like you you have to keep it simple in the beginning you have to kind of like focus on what matters is like understand the customers uh you know like really really deeply understand the problem and um you know I I talked to a few, you know, I had a few potential co-founders that were tech guys that I I built relationships with and for one reason or other, one or two of them, it just, you know, didn't work in the beginning. It's kind of sloppy, right? Sure. And eventually, um, you know, there's a guy that I've been friends with for about a year. Eventually he joined up as our, our co-founder he's a great technical guy. Uh, Chris is his name and he's, you know, been fantastic. Um, but eventually, you know, essentially what happened is I built enough momentum through the MVP that it became kind of like apparent that it would, it would be a missed opportunity not to be involved in the program. Right. And that's kind of what you yeah. want is you want people to feel genuinely excited about working with you and feel genuinely excited about working on the problem, but also feel like, hey, um, success is, is very much a possibility with this. And the more that you, the more the more symptoms of success you're able to show them, the better. And, and to that point, Jesse, then when you
0: you're making all this traction, you had this progress with uh, with just kind of yourself and just talking to people and everything and getting people interested, how much traction before you got the technical co-founder did you have?
1: Uh, we built, you know, we built to a place where we did seventy five hundred dollars uh, net revenue just in one month nice. um, with with literally just my cell phone. Uh, so it was enough to. And it really is not the number. It's like okay, so like it, it, was, it was as much qualitative as this quantitative, right? So like I've got a I've got a community of eighteen thousand salespeople, and those salespeople are kind of like clamoring to get it in to get easy up in places that it doesn't exist, right? I've got a list of uh, a couple hundred people on our waiting list that want to sign up and want to have access to our program when we're able to get to their their place, right? Because we're we're geographically um, constrained at the moment. Right. Yeah. So like they want to have it in Mississippi and they want to have it in California. I've got a guy that keeps asking me when we're going to have it in Australia. Right. <laughs> so like um, it's, it's really flattering and it makes you feel good, but more importantly, it shows you that, that at least your messaging and the concept is interesting to people because it takes a lot for people to like get off, to get off the couch, you know, to like, to care about something new. I feel like the, the biggest threat to success of any startup is not Google or Facebook or competition, it's people just not caring. Um and when people actually care, it's 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 a cool sign and it may be indicative of an opportunity, you know? Yeah, making something compelling enough to your point of
0: people like, you know, the, the default is to not do anything. Like, you know, to create that 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 inertia like you need to have something that's compelling. You need to have something that solves a real problem in order to get people to take action on it. With this, then you obviously had made enough traction where yeah, it made sense. People were interested. And when you brought on the technical talent as well as a co-founder, then I mean, what was this platform in terms of how like what did it look like when it, it first launched as the platform side, not just uh, you and your your cell phone connecting people.
1: Well, you know, we we want to keep it as simple as possible, right? And so. From our perspective, the core the core uh, features that have to exist are: you have to be able to search on the website to find a car that's great for your customer. You have to be able to share that that vehicle or listing or your inventory with your customer, um, and you know, customer needs to be able to um, see it. They need to be and then and then you need to be able to start a transaction with us uh, on the site, right? And so, like, those are, like, as simple as that is, like, you only need a little bit of functionality on an MVP, right? So, if yeah. I was able to grow with a cell phone, like, the whole point is, like, clearly it doesn't have to be perfect, right? People yeah. aren't buying our software. They're buying our solution, right? And the software is really for us. It's just to make our job easier, right? It's because I don't have 5,000 Jessies to answer the phone and answer texts and send texts out. If I had 5,000 Jessies, I wouldn't need software, Right. <laughs> but the software is for EasyUp. It's for it's for us to make it simple for us to fulfill the same functionality that I was fulfilling when it was just me and them, right? So uh, we keep it pretty simple. Uh, you know, we, we're kind of constantly learning about new things that that might benefit our customers, um, and you know, continuing to kind of like evolve the way that we look at the business. But I think the core functionality is simple, right? Find the car, share with the customer, start a transaction. And then, you know, at this point, we kind of shift to the offline world. Uh, Obviously, we want to build more and more of the functionality into the online world so that we can productize what we're doing. And with this too, Jesse, what is the business model behind it then? So, uh, you know, we're a B2B marketplace. So what happens is a salesperson finds the car. um, Once the customer knows that they like the car, we set the appointment. If the salesperson sells the car, uh, then we bill the dealership uh, a flat fee of 650 bucks. And then we pay our salesperson between four hundred and five hundred dollars. So essentially what's being sold is we're transacting the labor of the salesperson selling the car. We're not we're not actually selling the car itself on the platform, but we're allowing that salesperson to sell a car at a place where they don't work.
0: Gotcha. And then even figuring that out. So one thing that's interesting with, with all of this is, is the pricing model in terms of figuring out what that's going to be. Uh, did you just end up testing one or how did you figure out the pricing you're, you were going to use for this? Because that's such a critical part of startups. I'm curious how you did it.
1: You know, it's it, it's interesting because we we do have the benefit or the I don't know, you, could see, you can call it the benefit in some ways and you can call it the uh, challenge in other ways of operating in a pretty mature market. Yeah. So uh, we're not operating in, you know, cloud computing circa 2010 right we're not we're not seeing our market like drastically change every single year automotive is pretty steady right so like pretty consistently there's about 40 you know 40 million used cars sold a year it goes up a couple percent every year and consistently there's somewhere between 15 and 17 million cars sold you know except for one or two years that are exception over a course of a 10 or 20 year period right so like we kind of know the marketplace a lot of the fi- a lot of the figures are already out there So the average dealership pays $640 to acquire a customer, uh, acquire a new customer. That's their average expense, right? Yeah. So we took that 640 and said, okay, we'll do 650. The difference is that not only do you get the customer, but you also get the transaction. You get the the labor of the car being sold. And um, it's also being sold by someone that knows the customer. So it's a higher trust, higher satisfaction transaction. And you don't have to pay it until after you sell the car, so it's not like you're front loading the expense and just hoping it works, right? So that seemed like a, a pretty easy price point to to, to be at uh, on the salesperson side in terms of how much we're paying the salespeople. Um, you know, initially we started at like three fifty, and um, the hope was that that was enough, right? But yeah, um, didn't get a ton of excitement, so we just kind of like gradually stepped it up. We went to four hundred, and then um, what we do is we pay them five hundred dollars for their first three transactions as kind of like a bonus for trying something new. Right. And then it it settles in at 400 for the long term. still testing though. You know what I mean? Like I I can't tell you emphatically that this will be the price that we'll charge or the amount that we'll pay in, in three years. Right. It's just, it's what seems to work for now. Um, it $500, especially in the beginning seems to be plenty to get people interested in selling a car. Um, and you know, we have to, we have to pay enough that they want to do it. And again, they want to get off the couch. That's our primary competitor. Uh, and we ha- and we charge enough that I think some dealerships look at it and say, hmm, you know, that's too much, and that's okay, yeah. uh, if as long as we can sufficiently acquire dealerships that, that are that are okay with it, right?
0: Yeah, and on that note, exactly, that's where I wanted to go with uh, acquiring dealerships and acquiring salespeople. You mentioned you have people, you know, in Australia and all over, kind of interested in this. How are you kind of uh, acquiring your salespeople, acquiring dealers to be uh, on the platform then?
1: So dealers are, are, are totally different from salespeople in a sense of, um, you know, you can, you can go to a place and find the dealer, right? It's a, it's a, it's a business. So we, we, there's not so many dealers out there that we, in in my experience, uh, I've just kind of acted as a sales team and I've gone to the dealerships directly. And I actually think that scales, right? Uh, there's about 17,000 new car franchise dealerships in the country. Uh, so there's not so many of them that we can't touch them especially yeah. in the major metros as we expand to new markets. Uh, we've probably onboarded, t- you know, we have about 50 dealerships on board. Uh, probably about 30 of them have been through direct sales and then 20 have been in- inbound, right? They've, they've seen something about our product online. They've seen, um, you know, some kind of content that I've shared. Uh, a buddy has told them about it. A salesperson has told them about it and they've signed up that way. But um, so it's, it's a mix of inbound, just kind of content marketing, and through social, and, you know, out, an outbound sales team. Uh, then on the on the salesperson side, it's, it's mostly been social. So um, first, I have an 18,000-member uh, community on Facebook that we've really kind of cultivated and built over a few years. It actually precedes the business. But yeah. it's been a really fantastic, uh, you know, place where I can, A, like talk about the business, I can ask for feedback, Uh, on features and what matters and ask questions. Um, It's also been an incredible place to seed our initial users, right? Um, There's 18,000 salespeople in the, you know, in the U.S. and Canada in that group. And of course, like, why would I not, um, you know, make this available to them? Why would I not, um, you know, ask them to be a part of it? Uh, That's my natural customer base. A lot of, you know, probably half of our users have come from that. And then the other half have come from things like, uh, I've tested some employment ads on Facebook, uh, but most of it's been repeat, you know, referrals yeah. or, uh, you know, word of mouth, those kinds of things for the other, the other, uh, you know,
0: 50%. And interesting you mentioned with the group side of things, there was another person on, I'm trying to think of who it was, it's kind of escaping my mind, but the same type of thing with using groups in a kind of a community to then grow your platform, grow your business from that. And you can get a lot of insights from people that way. Which is an interesting customer acquisition strategy. It's it's much much cheaper than many other uh, customer acquisition strategies, especially when you look at the prices of, of Facebook, Instagram ads, etc. Yeah, it uh, can sure. be an interesting channel that people kind of I think underutilize when they're trying to grow a business, if a community type of thing. It takes time clearly to cultivate. I'm sure you you know you said years to build that before the company even started. So clearly there was time invested in everything there, but they can pay off though too. Obviously in the end.
1: Yeah, you know I mean, I, the way that I look at it is um, essentially it's a community is, is is a couple things if you want to look at it like really pragmatically then it's a it's a, it's a distribution advantage right because you already have kind of this aggregated group of relevant people to the thing that you're building and the ability to have kind of special access to their eyes and ears right um yep. but it's more than that really you know it it's 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 a group of people that that if if it's a true community cares about your success right so they're going to be mouthpieces for what you're building. It's a group of people that give you opinions on what works and what doesn't work, right? So, like the the distribution hack is huge, but I think people also under appreciate the things that the community does for you in other ways that are maybe less less simple to quantify, uh, but just from the process of like having this this already established distribution hub uh, and way of kind of reaching the consumer, right? Um, and so it's, you know, it's not unlike a podcast, right? Like you, you want to, you want to have fans, you want to yeah. have people that, that are on your side. You want to have people that, that want you to succeed. Right. Cause in, for the most part, the world doesn't care what you build, right? Like, um, the default, you know, like startups default dead, right? Most startups. Uh, so like the fact that there's people out there that want you to, that want you to live is, is, is an incredible thing.
0: Yeah, and on that note too, with what you mentioned, creating some of the content helps people as well, and that's a whole other you know channel as well we could discuss. But to your point of the podcast, it's like yeah, if you can create the media company, then there's like almost an infinite amount of products and services you can create off of that if you have the audience. And so that's sure. something I've definitely thought about with with Just Go Grind, and uh, you know you could you could go with route with it creating products, creating a book, creating a membership. There's so many different things you can do off of it. Uh, But you're obviously investing that time to create the platform of sorts, whether it be a media company, whether it be a community like you've done with EasyUp, definitely can be an interesting channel for people to explore from there. And one of the things you mentioned too, just kind of going back to different locations and how you're expanding, how are you approaching growth from like a geographical perspective, Jesse? Uh,
1: So, you know, the way that we look at it is um, growth is what we hope to find is that Growth is a function of quality, rather than, you know, we don't want quality to be the the indication of growth, right? I don't know that might be that might make a lot of sense, but (laughs) um, what we want is we want to really focus on the the process of of building this this first location, which is like north North Central Florida, and that's our that's like our primary focus. And the reason that's our primary focus is we want to get to some kind of liquidity in this first marketplace, right? Um, we are not a hyper-local marketplace in a sense that you can buy a car from an hour away, right? It happens all the time. Yeah, You're probably less likely to buy a car from 10 hours away, right? So there's, yeah. there, so then where's the line, right? We don't exactly know where the line is, but our opinion is that an hour, hour and a half is probably pretty close to the limit of what most people are willing to drive to, to buy a car, uh, especially if you can buy it locally, right? So our goal is to find liquidity in this first marketplace uh, to get to a place where our sellers are consistently—you know, when I say sellers, I mean our salespeople—are consistently able to type a car in, find a car that matches exactly what they're looking for, and sell that to their customer, right? They need to have a, a, a high enough kind of fulfillment um, fulfillment rate that they know when they go to Easy Up, they can find the right car. Right. And then on the other side, there needs to be enough salespeople that our dealers consistently uh, have enough business coming in that it's worthwhile them taking the time to work these deals. Right. If you sell one car every six months, then you don't really care about easy up. If you sell yeah. five to ten cars every month through easy up, then, OK, we're talking. Right. So, um, you know, we need to get to both of those features in our first marketplace. And that's really our primary goal. Um, and, you know, we, we, we have dealerships outside of this this primary market area. Because most of those are from inbound interest, right? If somebody calls me from Nashville, Tennessee, and they're really interested, um, you know, I'm not going to probably tell them they can't sign up. I'm just going to tell them I can't give them the same kind of support that I would give to a dealership in Jacksonville or Gainesville, and that I would hope to give them eventually. I just can't give it to them now, right?
0: Yeah, totally understandable. And it's an interesting thing when you go from, uh, you have to grow geographically. Different challenges with that. And you you always get that inbound request for people wanting you in different markets and being strategic about how you go about that. But obviously focus is a huge part of it and understand that you need to kind of dominate your first market. One thing we haven't discussed yet, going back to even getting started is, did you bootstrap this off of savings? Did you raise some capital? how did you get this off the ground financially?
1: Yeah, so totally bootstrapped um, to start uh, thankfully, the uh, the costs of you know asking people to text me and um, <laughs> uh, and and then me texting other people. I had to upgrade from the uh, limited text plan to the unlimited text. No, I'm just kidding. I "Back in." Yeah, 2003 probably, but something youngsters now, will never feel, never, never understand. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. Jesse, <laughs> um, Gen Z says, "What do you mean limited texts?" Yeah, um, we had to literally decide if we were texting <laughs> you back or not. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, no, so you know there was no real cost in the beginning besides my time. So yeah. I'm fortunate to have you know the the capacity and the ability to go a little bit without a ton of income. Uh, I had a great career in the automotive industry prior to this. Uh, so I'm really thankful for that, you know, privilege, which is what it is, right? Um, but you know, wanted to get to the place where we were, we were generating income and like a real business as quickly as possible. So bootstrapped it, didn't take any funding. Um, we've just in the last week gotten a wire from our first investor. Uh, we are in the thank you. Uh, we're in the process of kind of filling out the rest of our the rest of our fundraise. Uh, we're running a, a fundraising process and talking to a lot of really, um, you know, interesting and impressive people that have built companies and built, um, you know, funds in in the technical space and having a lot of fun meeting a lot of those people, um, having a fun, a lot of fun talking about what EasyUp is, you know, getting the word out and, um, you know, looking for someone to help us finish out this fundraise and yeah. get back to working and get back to building. So we're, we're raising our first raise right now.
0: That's awesome. And that's perfect because for people who are kind of going through that process or getting close to and considering it, because you're in it right now, I think it's probably have an interesting perspective. I'm curious as to how you're approaching this process as a first-time founder with this. Uh, how are you kind of approaching the fundraising side of it? Because it, it can be a lot and it's very daunting.
1: Yeah. You know, it's a lot. And so you have to do a couple of things, right? You have to like figure out, A, you have to remember that you have to continue to run the business while you fundraise, right? And so like you have to f- segment some time every day, to work on fundraising items and then you have to segment you know enough time every day to continue to make the business work right because like um if you let's say you fundraise and it takes you let's say you're like a really incredible fundraising efficient machine and it takes you um two months right like which yeah. would be a really good it'd be pretty good in terms of like raising your first round oh, if yeah. you don't have a, a huge network and things like that but if over the course of that two months your business just like falls apart then like a what's the point point? and B you're not going to be able to raise anyways because everyone's going to you know be concerned that the business isn't doing anything right so you have to segment your time and you have to be disciplined about being as effective as possible with the time that you have right so once you figure out how much time you can spend on fundraising um you know it, it's in my opinion is that it's best to stru- build a, build some structure around the fundraise right like figure out 30 40 50 people that you think would be good uh, good people to talk to. And, um, you know, those are hopefully GPs at stage relevant firms, right? If you're, if you're seed or seed, you want to find firms or angels that are appropriate to your stage. Um, try to make that list and figure out who you want to talk to, uh, find the easiest way to reach those people. Uh, I wish I could say that I believe that cold outreach is as strong as some people would have you believe it is on Twitter and, you know, all these other kind of places where you can learn about startups. But I, I don't necessarily believe that cold outreach um, is as effective as people claim it is, right? I think a lot of people yeah. say, I think a lot of funds say they're open to cold outreach. And then and they are in a way, in the sense of they might read your deck, right? But I do think it, it's definitely helpful to have someone that can say, listen, I know this 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 guy or girl, um, I've worked with them in the past. They're really talented. If they tell you that they're, they're going to do something, they always do it right. I, I just think that I think that's always going to be a benefit. I don't think that's the world we should live in. I think I think that um, you know just opportunities should be equally distributed. Uh, but I don't know if we're there yet. Right. That's my honest, yeah. my honest opinion. So try to find try to find intros to people that you can um, get intros to. Um, you can certainly, you know, cold outreach to the people that you can't get interest to and um, try to build all of those meetings within a week, you know, within a couple weeks and try to generate some kind of momentum in that fundraise by building the structure around it. Take all your initial meetings with that through a week or two, you know, take all your second meetings uh, through another two week period, um, you know, expect expect term sheets by two weeks after that. Um, you know, give allow three weeks for due diligence, and then hope to close two and a half, you know, maybe two months later, right? I mean, that 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 is the ideal fundraise, I think, for someone that doesn't have like the ability to just like say, oh, by the way, I'm raising and raise, you know, four million dollars <laughs> on an uncap note in 15 yeah. minutes because they have a huge network, right?
0: Yeah. And to that point though, I mean, yeah, I just want to highlight that. You will see that everyone says they're open to reach out to us. We're open, DMs open, whatever for investors. And it is very much so if you actually talk to investors, they want a warm intro. So you have to figure out as an entrepreneur being scrappy, how do you get a warm intro? Because I mean, I've interviewed a number of top ones in, in, in LA, a top VCs in LA and and around it. It's just like that's what you have to do. So it's it is a matter of hustling and trying to find that intro, whether it be, you know, someone in your alumni network who's at this firm, even if they're not a GP, even if they're just an associate or a principal, and can you get in with them? You know, it really is like any way you can get it in with them. And once you get it in there, then you can ask for more warm intros to other people. Um, it's, it's tough when you're starting from zero, obviously, um, but it, it is something where you can you can do that. You can find these intros. It, you, have, you just have to hustle. Like everything with entrepreneurship is a matter of hustling. And, and for you, then, with what you're looking for for investors, I mean, how did you make those the first the, the first kind of contacts? Uh, I'm just curious from your your perspective.
1: Uh, well, you know, so so I did a lot of what you just said, right? Like I, I looked at my 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 niche init- my network. To find uh, who are the people who are likely to be able to um, give me educated opinions on the best way to fundraise, and so the people that have been helpful with the business are kind of automatically the people that are likely to be helpful with fundraising, right? So, yeah. um, a, a great friend, a couple great friends that I've that I've really built even better friendships with, uh, that have you know a few people that. Are on my net, like you said, a guy in my alumni network, who's actually made a decision to make a small angel investment in us. It's his first angel investment in, you know, it's the second one in 10 years. Oh, so wow. that, that feels pretty good. Right. <laughs> yeah. Cause he's not exactly a prolific angel. Um, he's been really helpful in terms of like providing feedback as we build the business, but then also is, is pretty well networked and has, has helped us to connect to some people. Um, also, you know, I think that it's really helpful to meet, you know, I think that angels are a little more interested in uh, kind of cold outreach, possibly because angels have less of a established and kind of like automatic deal flow. They kind of have to work for their deal flow a little bit more, unless they're like a like truly a super angel. So yeah. um, those slightly less connect, you know, not less connected, but they're slightly less established angels can be really great because a they 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 probably have pretty good feedback for you as you build the business. And so love to have them involved, even if they're not investing much. But B, if they invest a little bit, then they're also going to bring their network to bear for you. So we've had three or four angels uh, commit to investing in EasyUp. And uh, those connections have been really helpful to kind of like create the, the explosion of network that we really needed um, when we only had three or four like, you know, connected people that we knew in the beginning. Now it's gotten to a place where, okay, we're at the second order. If we know three or four people and they each give us three or four people, then we're, then we have, you know, something closer to the enough, enough network to, you know, build a fundraise.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And for people, for context, I mean, fundraising can take, it can definitely take, take a while. I've had guests on the show who said it's taken up to, you know, seven to nine months. And I've had, and was like Strasser. I think it was episode 134 mentioned she had, had done 263 investor meetings to get her first checks. And yeah. so, you know, it can, it can be a slog, but just understand that upfront before <laughs> someone gets started it's not that it's impossible it just takes some some time and effort and and for you that understanding that I mean with the fundraising side of things and you know wanting to go that route for you at least what is that uh, gonna mean in terms of use of funds in terms of how you plan on like using that once you once you actually get the investment
1: so yeah you absolutely have to have a great idea of what you're using your funds for um, which makes sense right like um it, it makes sense that if someone's giving you or a million dollars that they would expect to know what you plan on spending the money on. Right. (laughs) Um, because everyone build that's building startups is at varying levels of expertise and understanding of how to build a business. Right. And generally startups are startups because it's never been done before. Right. Like that's what makes it a startup is that you're trying something and you're iterating on an experiment, uh, that, that may have never been tried before, at least not in this, in this environment. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So our use of funds is obviously we want to, um, we have about f- two technical hires that we'd like to make. Uh, I'd also like to hire uh, a customer success person and a, um, another, another salesperson to join the team. So that's like our immediate, uh, personnel needs. Um, we also, and, and that's the majority of the expense. Uh, we'd yeah. like to experiment a little bit with, um, different types of ads just to see what impacts and what helps us onboard salespeople. But really, I think it's about figuring out the product that you want to bring to market in a big way, right? So like, how can you spend this money to answer three or four core existential problems or questions that your business has today, right? Um, so our, our our goals are, like we said, we want to get to liquidity in this first marketplace, we want to see that our users are so happy with their experience that there's that they retain at a, at a high rate for a long time, right? Um, and so if we can kind of maximize that core happiness of our users, and if we can get to liquidity in our first marketplace, then I think that's enough to justify that we, okay, we've de-risked the fact that this is a, a worthwhile business. We've yeah. de-risked the fact that it can be done in an initial market. And then at that point, the next, you know, so the future risks are, um, you know, the things that you'd want to solve moving forward after like an A round, which would be, okay, can we expand to five markets, right? Does it work the same in each market? What are the things that work better or or worse as you expand, right? Um, Do we want to focus on geographically close cities to kind of piggyback off of the network effects of our existing cities? Or do we just go for the highest population areas, right? So those are... um, those are the kind of problems that we don't expect to solve right now, right. Um, but, but the problems that we do want to solve are liquidity and um, kind of the ability to really build a product that our users love and that justifies uh, then continuing to work on the business past that seed round. Yeah, and I appreciate that insight. And it is something
0: where if you look at the business itself in terms of getting investors, it's like, yeah, you're, you're in one, one main market now. You mentioned there being 17,000 dealerships and there's many more markets you could expand into. It's obviously a big enough addressable market where in terms of getting capital, it makes sense where you could expand, assuming, like you said, you can kind of prove out some of these different questions in this first initial raise of capital, which which will be interesting. I'm interested to see how you can go through it. And one thing I'm curious about with your experience previously, I mean, a lot of sales experience, how have you used that, that experience for, you know, a decade to, to then run, to grow easy up?
1: Well, some of it's really helpful and some of it's not right. So like you have to, uh, first be willing to throw things out that aren't relevant. Right. And so there's a lot of things. Um, and there's actually, I think if you're, if you're a domain expert, sometimes the, the, the worry is that you might know so much about the market that you might um, depend on your own knowledge rather than listening to, rather than listening to people currently in the market. So uh, for example, like I said, in the beginning, when I, when I had this idea of what the website would look like um, I created that all on my own, right? I didn't need user research to tell me that salespeople frequently have customers that they they can't help because of inventory. I didn't need user research to figure out that um, you know, on average, like 650 was kind of like a, a good number for initial pricing. But what I did need user research for was to figure out the things that just I didn't think of, right? That that, that maybe I had this blind spot through my experience that I was less, less knowledgeable about. So you have to um, – you kind of have to hold your assumptions um, up to the light to make sure that the things that you believe and things that you've figured out through 10 years in the business – continue to be relevant. But then I think the really helpful thing is a, you have an established network. Of course that's helpful, right? Like it's always easier to sell to people, you know, or even if you don't know for them to know you or you to be some kind of a known quantity, right? That's much more helpful than trying to go in and just say, Hey, I'm um, Joe. And I'd like to like change your business. And I just (laughs) graduated from the local community college. Right. Um, So, I think being a known quantity is really helpful. The other side of it is really kind of understanding the, the deeper down like motives and, and like motives and kind of um, motivations, I guess, of the people that you're talking to. How do they speak? You know, how do you communicate with those people? Understanding kind of the day-to-day life of the, of the people that you're talking to from a perspective of, you know, what they're likely doing on a day-to-day basis because you've done their job in one form or fashion at some, some other time. Right. So you can kind of speak to them using uh, language and situations that are most relevant uh, because you understand what they're doing. I think that's probably the biggest benefit is just being able to jump in and kind of have a deeper connection with the people you're selling to because you you've been there before.
0: Yeah. And one thing you mentioned earlier was being this kind of first time founder and just researching first, like, okay, what do you do to even like, create a startup to have this startup for you? Then what have been some of the best resources uh, that have helped you along the way? And uh, to that point as well, also looking at uh, books that have been impactful.
1: Uh, I'm a glutton for uh, information. So I think I, when I started Ooh. out, like I consumed everything I could possibly find. Um, and that's helpful for a bit. Um, so like some of the things that I, I remember, I think the first thing I ever listened to about startups in any kind of like educational way, Seth Godin had a, a series of podcasts on startups. Yep. Uh, I want to say he made them back in like 2012 or 2013, somewhere in that time frame, back when like podcasts were not cool. Um, <laughs> and that was really cool. I didn't listen to it in 2012 or 2013. I listened to it in 2018. Right, and that was my first exposure to anything about startups outside of you know like popular culture, um, and I thought that was really interesting, and it kind of piqued my interest and really opened me up to the idea of of starting a company, right? And I liked the kind of the approach of it, kind of almost being like a science experiment, and you know finding a niche and solving a problem, uh, whereas you know my experience with businesses to date before that had been kind of joining existing businesses or growing uh, kind of, you know, like we said, existing industries and taking those, those, those already pretty sizable, meaningful industries and, you know, turning dials and making them 15 or 20% better or, you know, building a better sales team and, and, and building a much better company, but not by, you know, innovating on business model or, or, or product that much. Yeah. Right. So, Really enjoyed that. Um, you know, I consumed a ton of like Y Combinator content. I consumed a ton of, um, you know, the the kind of cool podcasts that are out there, like the Harry Stebbings stuff and, um, you know, This Week in Startups, um, yep. you know, a, a lot of great, great podcasts. I liked podcasts a lot because I could listen to them as I was driving. Right. Yeah. Um, and then read things like, you know, Peter Thiel's Zero to One. Um, lean startup, you know, a lot of the kind of like stuff that you'd expect me to hear me say. Um, the one thing I would point out though is I started, I, I consume so much content that I think you actually, as you start to build the business or as you start to, um, you know, like focus in on a problem, you actually have to start to restrict your aperture on what you consume because it's not that helpful for me to listen, it's not at all helpful for me to listen to a podcast. With Harry Stebbings, with a Series C investor, about the things they look for in a Series C company, right? Because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm that's not my world, right? It's not timely. So it's irrelevant
0: right now. Yeah. When, yeah,
1: when you start, you kind of want to consume everything, and that's my nature. Is I wanted to consume everything. What I found is that I had to find, a, you know, I had to narrow my aperture significantly to the things that were immediately relevant. Uh, so that I could, uh, only really, only really be influenced by things that were important to me at this stage. And obviously you get busier and busier, so it gets much easier to do that. Um, but that was something I found It's like in the beginning, be super wide just to get like this, this wide swath of ideas around the industry and things like that. See what interests you. But as you start to build something, um, get more and more selective about the content you consume, uh, because a, you have less time and B. A lot less of it becomes relevant as you know what you're doing.
0: Yeah, I think that to the point, the getting all of the information you can early on it gives you reference points. It gives you context. You can kind of connect the dots between, oh, these people are saying some of the same things. These people are saying some of the same things. This is what I kind of think is the best route, or agree with, or whatever for how I want to create a business. And it gives you that perspective when you do all that research of, of all that stuff. And then I know Tim Ferriss always mentions like the just-in-time learning where it's like, okay, no, to your point, like what do I need to learn now? Like what can I read now that literally helps me with this problem I'm solving today or tomorrow, or like, like very soon, like very timely. Because at that point, if you're just reading general, you know, startup information or whatever, I mean, it's probably not going to be that helpful for you, especially when that asset, your time is so critical, especially in these early days. And, and with you too, I mean, uh, what has been the biggest challenge for you as you've been building this company as, as a first time founder?
1: Uh, I think that, you know, there's a lot of challenges. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe the, the hardest is it was particularly hard in the beginning when I had no, no real concept of building a software company. Yeah. How do I, how do I proxy for quality in, in a potential co-founder when I don't understand that field? right? So like, that's a challenging, that's the thing that that is super challenging for anyone trying to interview and hire or, you know, interview and, and join a co-founder if you don't understand what they do. So I think it would have been just as hard, you know, if, if I had been a technical co-founder looking for someone that was going to be a, you know, a sales oriented founder, right? I think it's hard to judge the things that you don't understand. Uh, And so, I think, you know, you have to kind of lean on advisors. You have to have let people, you have to ask for help um, as often as, as often as, as is feasible um, with people that can step in and give you opinions about uh, things that they don't necessarily have a huge vested interest in, but they want to see you succeed. And uh, the other part is you have to kind of really depend on, you know, just look for the highest horsepower people that you can align yourself with find smart, principled, interesting people that you'd like to work with and then find a problem that's worth pointing them at. And it's worth pointing yourself at and, you know, go from there. Right. Cause like it doesn't have to be if, if they know this language or that language is not, not as important. Or if they, you know, if they're, if they're like, it's just, it doesn't make sense to try to get too, to get, get too specialized in the beginning. So yeah. find smart people, align yourself with them, and, you know, find, try, try and try all constantly the whole time to find smarter and smarter people and, you know, people that you really enjoy working with. And that, cause that's like part of the benefit of building a company, right? Is <laughs> exactly. like you get to choose who you work with. You get to choose what you work on. You get to choose how you work on it. Right. That was challenging to start. And, um, it's also, you know, I, I think a lot of people are probably dealing with the challenge of being isolated right now. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are sitting at home and they don't have as much human contact as they would like. Um, I don't know if that's that's as much a function of the times as it is of what I'm doing. But I think running a company kind of um, probably exacerbates that a little bit because you have yeah. less and less people that you can talk to about um, problems because I'm not part of a, a 100-person org, right? Like we're a two-person company right now. Right? so yeah. like that severely limits the number of people you can talk to <laughs> about your about your business challenges because you can't talk to your customers about your challenges you know yeah. not not outside of hey we're working on this how could this work for you right it's it's you can't get too deep with them so I think that's that's a challenge I like I said um I, I tend to do pretty well in isolation um for better or for worse uh, <laughs> but it, it you know there's a limit to everything right and I think that I certainly would love for us to live in a world that was a little more Social, but really been thankful for the people in the startup community that have been really helpful and the people that I've met through is of all things like Twitter. Yeah, it's amazing the connections I've made and you know, a, a Slack community that I'm part of, which is how I came across you. And i nice. um, thankful for our proxies for human connection online, which I think are, are, are doing good things.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I I'll definitely vouch for that. I mean, looking at how many people on the show I've not met in person it's kind of insane and like you're able to when you kind of build relationships and use the tools that we have available whether it be uh you mentioned like texting and stuff like whether it be text email whatever get referrals from people it applies to everything really and that's how many of the guests have come about through referrals and there's so many resources out there if people want to find connection and make it happen it's just for sure, challenging uh, in terms of the in-person thing now, given the current environment we're kind of kind of in at the moment, but uh, navigating uh, best we can. I'm just curious, real quick, for you during COVID, from the business perspective, how has that kind of affected EasyUp?
1: I would say that COVID has accelerated the the um, kind of pro, you know the way that the business is going to change. So our opinion is that the automotive industry is going to bifurcate into two two ends of a spectrum right which the first end of the spectrum is kind of the the more um kind of sterile point and click amazon style carvana style find a car buy it have it delivered move on with your life end of the spectrum i think the other end of the spectrum is kind of the opposite right it's it's much more personal it's it's referral or repeat based it's person to person uh, and we foresee that the middle kind of dies, right? You have to kind of pick a side, because yeah. if you're if you're personal, but you try to convey that you're automatic and point and click, you're never going to be as point and click, or as um, as efficient as the most efficient point and click companies out there. At the same time, if you're somewhere in the middle and you try to convey that hey, we're, we're people, we care about you, we're going to give you advice, we're going to help you, we're going to point you in the right direction, but you're not committed to that, then again, you're going to die in the middle. So um, my opinion is that the business bifurcates, and I think COVID has accelerated that, right? Um, so you're, you're going to see increasing sales for companies like Carvana and these other companies, and then you're going to see the companies that do a bad job of being personal, do a bad job of being direct and do a bad job of of kind of making customers feel at home, they're going to die because you might as well just buy from Carvana or you might as well find a company that does that well. So what we want to do is we want to be the iconic company of, of of that side of the spectrum, which is we want to give people the ability to make connections, to build networks, to service those networks and sell their, sell their customers while maintaining really strong personal connections regardless of inventory. Uh, And that's, and that's kind of who we want to be. And that's what we've seen. And it's also, um, you know, our salespeople are more adept at offering different types of messaging to customers. So in times of change uh, things like, you know, needing a car to be delivered or not, you know um, those kinds of things that are important in, in, um, in Corona times um, we, we think that our people are more capable of messaging those types of things. Uh, because they don't kind of have the innovator's dilemma of sure they're willing to deliver twenty percent of their business, but they don't want to miss out on the eighty percent that that doesn't need it delivered, and they can make maybe a higher profit on or something like that. It's just an acceleration.
0: And Jesse, where can people go to
1: learn more about your company, connect with you, everything like that? Uh, you know, so the company I, I would love for people to check out the website, right? Like we're we're an early stage startup, so um, it's not as You know, we've still a lot of things that we're building and still a lot of opportunities for us to improve on it. Uh, So I'm always open to feedback. But if you go to easyup.com, that's E-A-S-Y-U-P-P.com, would love feedback, would love your opinion, would love to talk about the company with people that are interested, uh, whether it be people that would like to join the team or people that um, are, you know, potentially interested in investing or just learning more about the company. And then me personally and the company, you can always reach out to me on Twitter. Twitter is super easy. My at's uh, Chef61, so S-C-H-E-F-F-6-1. You can also shoot me an email, jesse at easyup.com, J-E-S-S-E. Perfect. Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen.